Welcome back to UCM Veterans Voice, a podcast sponsored by the Military and Veterans Center at the University of Central Missouri. My name is Garrett Fuller, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dewey Ball, a certifying official at the Military and Veterans Center, Andy Shaw, a junior studying physical therapy, and Kenny Wall, a graduate student studying to be a college student personnel administrator. Today, we have a very special guest joining us. Dr. Chris Stockdale is the Associate Dean for the College of Education here at UCM. Previously, Dr. Stockdale served for four years in active duty for the Army as an armor crewman and another two years in the Army Reserves. So first, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Stockdale and ask how he got into the Army. Well, that's a great story. (laughs) I think uh, when I was maybe 13 or 14, uh, we had a family meeting. Uh, The only other family meeting I remember uh, was when we found out Mom had cancer. So these were sort of serious uh, moments in my family. And uh, so my parents were seated on the couch and then... Um, my s- older sister, myself, and my brother were in chairs sort of facing them. And then uh, I think my dad started the conversation something like, uh, well, we only got enough money to send one of you kids to college. It's not going to be you two boys. So uh, we need to know your plans because we follow the 1830 rule in this house, which means when you turn 18, you got 30 days to get the hell out. <laughs> they said, Christopher, what's your plan? And I said, Army? And he said, all right, I'm going to hold you to it. And then uh, he said, Alvin, what's your plan? Um, and he said, Army? And, he, <laughs> and my dad said, all right, I'm going to hold you boys to it. And on my um, 17th birthday, we had a um, birthday party. And a week later, the recruiter was at my house uh, by invitation of my parents. And he brought the paperwork. And they basically signed me over to the Army. And that's, that's sort of how I got into that. 13 years old, you made that decision. <laughs> if you could call it a decision, you know. <laughs> I think I was following the, the um, you know, Go Army commercials or whatever they were, at the t- Be All You Can Be so probably at the work, time. All right. And, uh, you know, I saw that forty at the time, $40,000 for college. And uh, I said, all right. I, I think intrinsically I knew that that was my ticket out. You know, I, I think that's one thing that I knew um, – like, like a lot of other veterans, I came from a very small town, you know, 1,400 people, and I lived, you know, 10 miles outside of that. So there weren't a lot of uh, either employment opportunities or educational opportunities or anything else. And so being from a low-income family and then, um, like many other veterans, then I, I sort of saw the military as one potential pipeline, and that's what I took. What year was this when you went in? Um, I, I would have signed the paperwork in 97, but went into, um, basic training in 98. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Vianna, Illinois. It's a um, small town in, um, what I would call southernmost Illinois. So, um, I like to tell people it's the Kentucky part of Illinois in, in case they're confused and, and they're thinking of Springfield or something. But, um, so that, that's where I grew up. A lot of, uh, rural farmland. Uh, my grandfather had a cattle ranch, but um, he had 12 kids, and since my dad wasn't the firstborn child, then um, the farm wasn't going to him, so there just weren't a lot of future options. 
So when you got into the Army, uh, what was one of the first things you did? Uh, so can you tell us about what happened after you got recruited in? Sure. Well, you know, I, I went to MEPS just like uh, everybody else goes to and, and uh, you know, do all the physical and that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, I'd already taken the ASVAB um, tests so that they knew, you know, my um, skill set. And, uh, and then they kind of asked me about what job I wanted to do. And, and uh, I said, I've narrowed it down to the combat arms, which uh, there's only about four of those in the army. And um, so, and I said, I, you know, I'm looking for the full college benefits, whatever is tied to that as well. And so um, as he was kind of scrolling through the computer screen, I saw armor crewman. I didn't really even know what that was fully. And I was like, I'll do that, armor crewman. I think they were in alphabetical order, so I didn't really, <laughs> really weigh all my options. And, and he was like, son, you don't want to do that. He said, I was a tanker. You don't want to be a tanker. And I was like, no, I really do. And he's like, don't you want to do something like with computer? He's like, you're a smart guy. You do something with computers or something. When you get out, you can use that skill. I'm like, you know, I, and I just, you know, yes, I was wanting to go into college but and, and use the benefits for that. But at the same time, I didn't want to, join the army and then sit behind a desk. You know, to me that I, I felt like that wouldn't really be fully committing to it. And so um, I don't know that I had enough energy to, to be infantry. So I was maybe kind of ruling or staying away from that. But um, but being a tanker did sound good to me. And, and so that's the path I set out on. You wanted to get the full army experience and being in a tank or around the tank is definitely the way to go. That's why they put it in those damn commercials. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I I think I, I probably couldn't have even really drawn like a tank though. You know, like I I had seen one momentarily, but this was, you know, pre Google. So it wasn't like I was really doing a lot of investigating. I just kind of signed the dotted line and then went to what I thought was basic training. Now, what's interesting is that um, tankers actually don't go through basic training. They go through a program called OSA, which is one station unit training. Um, and so, um, because the, um, the tank is, is a very highly complicated piece of equipment, it's basically like having a fighter plane, but on the ground. So there's some benefits there. If something goes wrong, you're still on the ground and not going to, you know, <laughs> crash, um, out of the sky, although I have crashed the tank before, but, um, <laughs> but, um, so what's really interesting about their quote unquote basic training for tankers is day one, you learn how to tie your boots And day two, you learn how to open the hatch of the driver's um, station. And so you, in concert with each other, you learn how to be a soldier and a tanker at the exact same time. And so by the time that that in not just the eight-week basic training, but by the time, you know, 16, 20 weeks or whatever it was is done, then you're fully skilled at both. The, the bad part is it means you never really get that sort of AIT thing of like, oh, now we don't have the drill sergeants bring it, breathing down our neck. Like we can just kind of chill and learn our skill because they were there the entire time. So did you uh, still do marching and the, the type of drill and all of that? or We did, but probably a lesser amount than, than everyone else. In fact, um, besides chaplains who don't carry a weapon at all, uh, tankers are at the time. I don't. It may have changed, but tankers are the only MOS that doesn't qualify in the M16. Hmm. Um, they don't fit at the time. We didn't have M- M4, so they don't fit inside the tank. Um, not in all the stations, and so you're not assigned one. We did uh, one like morning of familiarization with them in case you're ever you know on the battlefield and pick one up or something. And other than that, then um, you have a um, M9 pistol strapped to your chest, and that's all we had up until way later in my 
um, service and, and M4s came out and we began to incorporate those. But yeah, we did no qualifying with the uh, M16. So where were you uh, first stationed or deployed to? I was first stationed in Germany. So um, a little town called Friedberg, um, Germany, about um, just a little north of Frankfurt. Uh, of course, I didn't know. I probably could barely have pointed to Germany on a map, you know. But um, so I was stationed there, and uh, I actually remained there for the entirety of my um, active duty enlistment. Have you been back to Germany since? I have not. Um, I, I really want to. And, of course, I tell these stories, and my wife, you know, is like, oh, it would be great if we could kind of go back and see it. Of course, the base is no longer there. And, and with that, you know, the, the town, the kind of face of the town has kind of changed a little bit too. But I traveled around a lot, and I learned German, you know, while I was there. And then I had to learn a foreign language in college too. So then I was like, I might as well actually learn um, academic German rather than the, the sort of street German I picked up by watching The Simpsons and walking around <laughs> <laughs> Friedberg. <laughs> but I would love to go back. So, actually, a lot of people I know that have served in the military uh, have actually been stationed in Germany, so it's kind of odd because uh, of that. And uh, what was your favorite part about Germany? Hmm. I, I mean, I loved every every part of German culture, you know, and I think maybe even particularly so because I was in a small town. So you have like the bakery and you go there and get like all these great like pastries and the nice crusty, you know, European bread. And so that was great. And then you go to like the meat shop and you just get like some cool local meat or whatever. And you go to a fish shop, you go to a cheese shop. So I mean, I, I, I really immerse myself in, in the sort of German culture as well. In fact, some people thought I was German because, um, you know, I didn't necessarily dress, you know, I wasn't wearing like white tennis shoes and, uh, and a baseball cap, you know, or something. And, and so, um, and I think I even, what was kind of key, I bought my glasses like on the German economy too. And so Germans have a, tend to have a particular style of glasses. And so, um, so people would like ask me for directions, but I spoke okay German. So I was actually, and I knew the town, so I was able to give them directions and, um, (laughs) So I, I really loved all those aspects. The parts I didn't really enjoy as much. I mean, we we were just in a high high training environment, um, knowing that you know Germany is often used as a staging area for the Middle East or other conflicts that can pop up. And so um, you know we just spent more time in the field than than um, most other folks do. And then in Germany, when we go to the field, it's always winter and it's always. Um, you know, two feet of snow followed by a foot of mud underneath, and mm-hmm. and um, it, the the tank gets pretty cold depending on what your role is, and and so uh, those were maybe the less appealing aspects. <laughs> You're only in for four years. I did four years active, and then um, and then I did follow it up with a couple years in reserves. You know, I I kind of I I while I didn't see myself doing a career in the army, I you know when you enter in at the age of seventeen then it's sort of the, it's the only adult life that you know. And so um, I think I saw the reserves as kind of a way to, you know, I knew it was only one week in a month or whatever, but I think I saw it as a way to kind of hang on to that identity or that security blanket just a little bit longer. And and probably my, when I left, it was because I probably no longer needed that. I had, you know, transitioned in some way to the university and, and felt comfortable there eventually. So how did you eventually come here to the university? Oh boy, that, boy, that's a really long story. <laughs> you know, I I knew from a young age that um, I wanted to become a teacher, and so um, I kept that. I maintained that um, concept my entire time 
um, in the army, and um, and so I ended up being really good at being a tanker. And so everyone, and I was kind of a, a jokester as well. So people really thought I was joking that I wanted to be a teacher and I was just going to get out after my first enlistment and, and go to school. I mean, they were, they thought I was a lifer and and that I was pulling some big prank on them. And like I literally had to go to guys and be like please say goodbye to me. I am literally leaving. You will never <laughs> see me again, maybe. So um, they, they thought it was that last minute stuff. So um, so so that was kind of interesting. Um, but I, I kept with that plan and I ended up um, doing my teacher certification at um, Southern Illinois University, which is really near where I, it's the closest university to where I grew up. And so um, it was what I knew and, and I went there. Um, and then I got a job teaching high school um, English out in uh, Central California. And so I taught both at a traditional um, high school and I taught um, for three years um, on a Native American reservation in a two-room school. Um, so I, um, we had only freshmen and sophomores there and I taught English and social studies on my side and then uh, my colleague taught math and science on his side. Um, and so, um, so I did that and then eventually I got... Um, admitted into grad school. I did my master's degree in English and I started teaching for, um, teaching at the college level. And then I eventually realized that I couldn't do much more with a master's in English than what I could with a bachelor's in English. And so I thought, I think at some point I need to get the doctorate. And I just went right through and, and did that. And, and I was hired um, here at the University of Central Missouri um, basically at the same time that I finished my doctorate at University of South Dakota. Well, we can continue the conversation because I'm really interested in teaching at the reservation, actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And well, how was that and what got you to there? I've, I've actually thought of that. Yeah. Um, I had never thought of, uh, you know, applying to teach on a reservation. I mean, I obviously living living in that area, um, I saw the, you know, the casinos and reservations out there. But um my, the first year that I taught high school, I worked with um, pretty closely with a school counselor, and um, you know I'd have students that I needed to send with her. We worked together on on some things, and um, she left because she took an administration position, and I didn't really follow where that was or or whatever. And um, so then I kept teaching at that school. And about a year later, then um, I got a call from her, and she's like, "I got a job for you." I'm like, "Well, I'm not really looking for a job." She's like, "Yeah, but..." She's like, I think you'd be perfect for this. And she said, you know, so she started to describe the school and said, um, you know, there have been a lot of challenges, a lot of teacher turnover. Um, the students were like students anywhere, but, um, but they had obviously some challenges, you know, in, in home life and, and economically and with behaviors and, and those sorts of things. And so um, she's like, they just really need somebody kind of different. You know, she may use the word like quirky or something, you know. And um, so she's like, I just, I think you'd be perfect for it. So I, I went and interviewed, not really even, I was like, well, I'll, I'll at least hear them out and hear what they say. I mean, I was the only person they interviewed. They offered me the job like, you know, 20 minutes into the interview. And, <laughs> and uh, I was like, Ugh. I, I was like, I need to see it. You know, like I, I don't really have a good concept of what, um, you know, what reservation life would be like, you know. And, and, and so I went out and saw the school and, um there's a teacher who I observed who was um, very ineffective. And, I mean, students were throwing, you know, paper wads and stuff all over the room. I mean, even with uh, an administrator and a visitor in the room. I mean, so if that's what it was like with visitors, you know, then you might imagine what it would be like otherwise. But Well, well that's crazy. That would turn most teachers away. What drew you to that? Yeah. Well, the facilities were beautiful. 
you know, it, it was it was a very new looking building. I think it was very recently constructed within a year or two. Um, and they had already told me about all the supports, the community supports that were that were there. And so I think I realized that probably the only missing piece, or at least the, a critical missing piece, was a quality teacher. That's not, you know, we don't do a great job even within the same, even within a same building or a same district of matching up the best teachers with the students who are most in need. Typically, you're like, well, I've developed my skills. I've moved up in the ranks. I want to teach all honors-only classes. I don't, I don't want any of the bad kids. The, the new people can deal with that just like I dealt with that. We don't do a great job of that, and that's always been an um, area of passion for me is to work with students who don't really fit the mold because when I was in school, I, had, I didn't really fit the mold either. You know, I was in trouble a lot. And so um, I thought if I could get there, I think I could really do something meaningful. And, um, and so I, I took that chance, and it became one of the best experiences of my life, really. You know, I, um, what, what I was doing, I, w- I was making a difference. Probably the most unique thing is we spent the entire day with the same students. Hmm. You know, I was coming from a high school with seven periods a day, 35 students a class, you know, over a 200-student load per semester. It's, it's Thanksgiving before you've learned all their names. So, yeah, you, you still find your couple students that you develop a r- great relationship with. They hang out in your class after afterwards or whatever. But, I mean, I ate lunch with these kids every day. We, you know, they had their PE, which was our prep period as teachers. But as long as I was kind of caught up, I'm, I'm going to PE, right? I'm, I'll shoot hoops. I'll play football. I'll, I'll dodgeball, whatever we're doing that day. Um, and so it, it was a very different model of schooling than what we all do. You know, our classroom rules were the Native American Ten Commandments on the wall. Mm. And that was the rules we operated on. Um, and every morning I had a, um, what we called our Native American liaison. He would, he, he would come to school about 8.04, you know, school started at 8, and he'd say, who's not here? And I'd be like, well, Andy hasn't showed up. He's like, I'll be back. <laughs> and he'd come back. It may take him 20 minutes. It may take him three hours, but he would bring back Andy. <laughs> and um, so, so those were the things that were great about it. It, it. it was just missing that quality instruction, someone who could really hold the students accountable, show them lots of love, but say, yeah, I love you, kid, but gosh, you're, you're screwing yourself up right now, right? And here's what's going to happen if you continue down this path, right? It doesn't mean that you're doing, it doesn't mean you're a terrible person, but your choices right now aren't great. So let's, let's go back and look at these. So yeah, I was teaching English, you know, I mean, I'd have to go in and say, all right, who wants to do Shakespeare today, you know, and you, you do that, but I probably taught way more life lessons than I did, you know, grammar. <laughs> you were helping them succeed, right? Trying to, you right. know, and uh, and a lot of students did. They started that school for just for freshmen and sophomores because the reservation, like most reservations in the country, are very isolated. And so if the students missed the bus, then they missed the whole day of school. It wasn't like they could just walk in later or the parents who may be working or, or they may not have a parent who can bring them in, then, um, then they miss an entire day of school. So I had high school students who could not read. Mm. Who, who were not literate. So the school you were teaching at, that was on the reservation or off reservation? On the reservation, okay. yeah. But it was um, a regular state-funded school. Um, it was just what, what California called a necessary small high school. When the recession hit in 2009, which leads to the rest of my story, it was no longer deemed a necessary small high school, and so it closed. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask what took you away from there. Yeah, so... Um, I received a pink slip, and um, I was laid off the same day that 30,000 K-12 teachers in the state of California were laid mm-hmm. off. Yeah. Right at the height of the recession, the housing 
crash hit California harder than a lot of other states. And so, um, so I realized that, okay, I can, you know, I'm certified, I can apply for a job, but if, if there's an open English teaching job, I'll be applying with 300, 400 candidates. And it's hard to stand out, you know, if you don't know anyone in that district. And so I was just really looking at the odds and saying, you know, wow. So at that time, um, higher ed was a much more stable environment. Now we're seeing enrollments drop in higher ed and budget cuts and those sorts of things. But at the time, it, it, it seemed like a relatively stable you know, direction to go in. And so I probably would still be teaching at that high school um, if it had not closed due to the recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you keep in touch with anybody there or? I don't, you know, it, the reservations tend to be, you know, really insular and, and um, some of the folks, they don't travel outside of that and, and they really keep even some of their online presence, just a very close knit um, community. And so I try not to be intrusive to that in some way. And it, obviously, if a student tracks me down, you know, now or, or then, then of course, I'll respond and catch up with them. But it hasn't been a, a very close connection. Mm-hmm. Rolling back to... Uh, Shortly after you got out, you came back to Illinois, right? I did. And yeah. uh, small hometown college, kind of like UCM. Yeah, yeah. At the time, it was a little bit bigger, but um, but yeah, re- relatively small town, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and you said you were in the reserves for like two years, so I'm s- assuming that you were doing school and reserves at, at kind of the same time? I was. So, you know, when I got out, then I'm like... Um, you know, I'm interested in the reserves, but I was like, I really don't want to reclassify and learn a different MOS or something. So I want to be 19 kilo, you know, I want to stay a tanker. They're like, we got you, right? But we, we got a tanker battalion or platoon, I don't even know, um, nearby. I'm like, perfect. So I get there, they're like, welcome into the drill sergeant unit. And I'm like, come again? <laughs> and I was like, I thought this was like 19 kilo. And they're like, yeah, we are 19 kilo, but w- this is a drill sergeant academy. And so on your one week in a month, you'll be going through drill sergeant school. Um, and then on your two weeks a year, we're going to go out to basic training. We all remember that um, basic training uh, company who had the reservist drill sergeants that just come through. And so every two weeks they had different drill sergeants. And that was me. Hmm. Yeah. So you had some time as a drill sergeant then. I had time as a drill sergeant trainee. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to do... All the things, including, you know, the, there's a, there's a sort of uh, the urban urban legend of the drill sergeants like yelling at a tree, but you have to memorize all these really long um, commands, and so you're just out there wandering around the quad, <laughs> you know, um, maybe landing on a tree and, and kind of memorizing them. You know, the the first position, uh, which I will name, explain, and demonstrate, is the position the position of attention. The position of attention is a key position for all stationary facing and marching movements. The command for this position are fall in and attention. Fall in is, you know, I mean, you just go on and on, and, and that's your, oddly enough, that's the main part of drill sergeant school is memorizing all the the movements and the things that the um, trainees are supposed to do, um, and all the other stuff is supposed to just come secondary nature. You just remember how you made your bunk when you were in and, and how you marched to the chow hall and that sort of thing. So how did that, uh, how'd that help you with your transition? You said uh, you were kind of in the reserves to hold on to that piece of you that was the army mm-hmm. and you eventually let it go. But I, I'm kind of wondering at what point was it like, okay, this is, it's, it's a part of me, but it's no longer an active part of me. Yeah. I, I think I, because of my sort of upbringing, you know, 
college, being college bound, even though, you know, I said I wanted to be a teacher, but, you know, we weren't, we just weren't like a college culture kind of family and my school, really low income, really small um, high school. It wasn't, you know, most people are just going to go work for their dad's auto shop or whatever. I mean, my first jobs, um, I was an excavator. Um, I changed tires at a Western auto. I was a framing carpenter. Um, so th- that was, that's where I'm from. It's that sort of blue collar mindset. So I didn't really, um, I didn't yet see myself fitting into the university culture and um, trying to figure out um, what that day looks like. And I liked the regimented day in the military. They tell you what to wear, when to show up, when to leave. You know, if you don't leave fast enough, they yell at you, right? You, you figure it out. And so going to the university, it's like, yeah, you can go to class or maybe not. Or maybe you get a job. I don't know. And I'm like, okay, um, that's unnerving to me. So, you know, that one week in a month and, you know, someone gets in my face and tells me what we got to do and, and what to wear and what to bring. And then um, and I, I kind of I like that. I still like that. Don't you guys? Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, I mean, yeah, not, occasionally, yeah, not 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 an everyday occurrence, but. not not to the level the military was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, but. I, I want to go back to you talked about how joining the army was going to get you out of that small town. So, why did you choose to go back there? <laughs> Boy, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, I honestly felt like I kind of owed it to my family to come back. Um, so for my four years in Germany, I didn't come home once because you get, you know, you're, you earn leave, but as, as you all know, you, you don't just get to use that willy nilly when you want, you know, like, Hey, I got 30 days saved up boss. I'm, I'm going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's kind of a seniority thing, how long you can even be gone. And, you know, the new guy doesn't get to be gone at Christmas and that sort of thing. You got to stay back. And so, so it's really there are, you know, restrictions on what you can do. And so um, I was looking at, you know, options like, do I go back to Southern Illinois for seven days or do I go to Paris? And I went to Paris and I spent a month in Poland and I went to Denmark and I stayed for a month on the, in the Canary Islands. And so uh, I knew I would not have those opportunities again. So, um, but because I did not literally see my family for four years, they did come visit me um, toward the end. But because I didn't see them, then I was like, I think I, I can't just go to school in California. Like, I have to come home, home, home. <laughs> you had a little more thought about it than I did. Yeah, I did the reverse on my, my leave. I always came home, and I regretted it later. Like, Sam, I could have went to this place or that place. but Right. Well, you asked me if I'd ever been back, and the answer is no. And yeah. so I'm glad I, you know, saw as much of it, as, you know, Luxembourg and whatever mm-hmm. as I could while I was there. I just saved all mine so I could go on terminal leave like three months early. <laughs> Are you there, Garrett? Yes. So earlier you t- you were talking about university and uh, how you kind of hated that life. So what was kind of adjusting to that life where you don't have any regimen, you don't have a routine? What was that kind of like for you? Hmm. I mean, honestly, I was pretty pretty lost, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I went to college and, and, um, I did not have, um, you know, we, we did have a military veteran center. It was really where you would just walk in to, um, get some paperwork processed or something like that. I didn't really feel like I had a 
relationship with anyone. We didn't ha- even that office. I mean, it had three desks in a big open room, you know, maybe a couple waiting area seats. So it wasn't a place that you would go hang out. Um, and so, um, you know, I got a part-time job and started working and, um, you know, I, I built my, I'm, I'm kind of like Kenny, you know, like what are the things I need to do and how quickly can I do these? And so, um, I blocked out my calendar from eight to noon and took all of my classes in the mornings. And I worked, um, I worked at a liquor store, um, from like 4 p.m. to midnight, did a little bit of homework in between, came home, closed down the liquor store at midnight, came home. You usually can't go right to bed, and, but I knew I had to be in class at 8, and so um, you try to wind down as quickly as possible. And so really, I guess my sort of coping mechanism or transition plan was I, f- I filled my entire day. I did not have downtime. I don't think I would have known what to do with downtime. And then on the weekend, um, I'd have friends, you know, you wake up on Saturday morning and I'd have friends who say, hey, let's go to the gym and you go to the gym. So sort of like PT all over again. And we, I filled that day and you got to go grocery shopping at some time and whatever. And so um, I think that was really what I did is I just packed, packed that schedule. You know, Yeah, you created your own structure and regiment. Which I still like to this day. You know, mm-hmm. I, I still like having, even if it just involves me, you know, I want to I want to wake up at roughly the same time and, and do the same sorts of activities. And, and I, it's probably a fault that I don't like having, you know, like I'm probably not as spontaneous as what I could be. So what eventually brought you here to the University of Central Missouri? Um, really, you know, I was, so I graduated with a doctorate in education and curriculum instruction, which is, is about the most general thing you can do in education. That was on purpose, you know, because don't forget, a few years before this, I was laid off <laughs> um, in what I thought was a secure job. So I thought, I want to be all things to all people. And so um, so I was able to apply for a really a wide variety of positions. And so um, and one of those I found um, was um, a department chair position here on campus for academic enrichment. And it, it had a lot of the things that I, that I feel passionate about, education, of working with students who may have had some challenges in the past and then using you know, really effective teaching to try to um, get them up to speed. And, and so um, and so that's what brought me here, and, and I really enjoyed that position. So you, you said you, you enjoyed helping those that kind of had trouble. Um, and then I, I know you personally, so uh, a, a lot of or a, a bit of what you do here at the university is kind of helping uh, the, the veterans transition into, mm-hmm. into civilian or college life. What uh, what what drew you to that over other, other problem areas, I would, I would say. Yeah, I, it's a great question, Andy. I, for me, I, it's just natural. It's just what I do. You know, um, I, early on, I was, um, introduced to, uh, Jeff Huffman, who was the former director of the military veteran center. Um, but Jeff Mm -hmm. Huffman kind of introduced me to some of the programming, um, that they had and, and, um, Really, that was it. I, I really developed a friendship with him, and so I'd stop by the center, and then eventually you meet one veteran, you meet another veteran, and, and eventually then I kind of realized that um, as odd as it might sound for not only a professor but also an administrator on college to, or at a college to sort of find a support network, but that's what I found, um, that my job can get stressful too, and I found our veteran center as a place where I can go in and just kind of, you know, when I walk in, 
most of the time, people don't call me Dr. Stockdale. They just say, hey, Chris, what's going on? Or Dr. Peanut. Um, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a comfortable atmosphere. It's, there, there's a relationship-building factor with veterans. You know, as much as we differentiate ourselves from each other and say, like, oh, you know, Marines and, and Air Force or whatever, um, but there is something that just uniquely unites us all you know, like my wife has always said, you know, she's like, we go to the, this party and there'll be 60 people. She said, it takes you 20 minutes to be standing at the punch bowl with another veteran. Like, mm-hmm. how'd you find that, you know? And I'm like, it just happens, you know? You, you have some shared experience. And, um, and so um, even though th- that shared experience is on a huge spectrum, yeah. but there's a, there's a foundation, though, that, that does carry through. Yeah, those experiences are very unique. Mm-hmm. It's not something that carries over to a lot of people who have not had that experience. Right. And, and it's different as you can still be otherwise, you know, like I, I brought up the example of Jeff Huffman, you know, and I mean, we we're polar opposites, you know, politically and religiously and, and, um, several other ways too. But, um, but this is one thing that's always grounded us together. And so it gives you an instant, um, it gives you an instant icebreaker. Cause you, you know, you find out someone's a veteran you're like, what branch? Cool. Where were you stationed? Awesome. How many, how many depl- you, you deploy? What was going on with that? Right. Like um, and, you know, what kind of weapon, weapon systems were you working on or whatever? And so we have the shared language. We, we know kind of the beats. Um, and I, I think there are other cultural elements um, that, that other, you know, people who play in bands or something have like, oh, you're in a rock band, too. Like, what do you play? Like what? And so we just have that as a culture. And I don't know that it, I don't know that veteran culture is a very widely recognized sort of body. But, but if you look up the definitions of a culture, right, that there's often it involves certain like dress, certain language, um, customs, customs, yeah. uh, songs, all, we have all that. Yep. So, so to me, that's a, it's a shared culture. Agreed. Well, it's funny, like when me and Andy, you know, both serving in the Marine Corps and countless times, he's like, man, like your Marine Corps experience was so much different than mine but we still have so much that's shared that it's like, you know, when I'm talking about something, even though he didn't live that, he still has a, a very good idea of what it was. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk to somebody who's never served and they're just completely lost. They have no grasp on any of that. Right. And, and that's why I always tell people, because I, I do just the nature of my sort of position on campus, then, you know, people feel safe kind of asking me like, so, you know, I just don't know how to talk to veterans or whatever. And, you know, one of the biggest things I tell them is not to say thank you for your service. It is literally a conversation ender, right? That's the sentence that would come after a long paragraph, but they never say the paragraph, right? So blah, 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 all this great interaction. And at the very end, thank you for your service. So when people come up and then find out, you know, it's Veterans Day, you're wearing a pin or whatever, and they're like, hey, Dr. Stockdale, you know, Chris, you know, thank you for your service. It's like, that's great, but that's a conversation ender, and I think the things that I just talked about are how civilians can interact, right? To say, like, oh, you were in the military. Like, what branch, I assume U.S. military, what branch of service were you in? Wow, the Navy. Like, so were you on a boat? Okay. Like, what was that like? Like, what kind of things do people do? And I don't think any veteran would be uncomfortable answering those questions. Um, but we're, what, what are we, I still don't know, what are we supposed to say when someone says, thank you for your service? Like, you're oh, welcome. It's it's such an awkward thing. Like, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Thank you for your service, and you just like tip of the hat, like, <laughs> like <laughs> dance a little you know, jig and oh, walk on out. <laughs> you are very welcome. 
Yeah, but it, it's, it, it's awkward. You know, how do you answer that? And there was a time when I was kind of cynical and I would be a little bit of a, a, a butthole about it, but I went past that. But I still definitely agree with what you're saying. Like, you know, it is. It just kind of ends things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, okay, you're welcome, I guess. I don't know really what to say. but yeah. I think we all went through one of those phases where we're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, my go-to is, uh, well, thank you for your support. Just yeah. because, I mean, there's a lot of people in the country that wouldn't, like, like don't like the military because of what they perceive that we do. So, I mean, not not particularly in this part of the country, but, I mean, anytime someone says thank you for your service, my automatic go-to is thank you for your support because, I mean, there's still people out there doing what we did, sacrificing what we sacrificed. So, I mean, well, to an extent. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, That's a great line. I, I'll, I'll have to borrow that. I, <laughs> I mean, we couldn't – the the saying goes, like, America doesn't need a Marine Corps. America wants a Marine Corps. No, my, they, they need it. Well, yeah. Did you all make up the saying before? <laughs> <laughs> we got together and we brainstormed. <laughs> Andy Andy just brought this up the other day, and I was like, no, they do. And he's like, well, why? What What does the Marine Corps do that the Army can't do? I said, win battles. So America needs a Marine Corps. I don't care what anybody says. But, I mean, we couldn't do what we do if the entire country was against us. So, I mean – the fact that there are people out there that outwardly show support for us, I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's exactly why I always say thank you for your support because it does mean a great deal to me and it means even a bigger deal to more people out there. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take thank you for your service rather than the, the big old F you, you know, <laughs> you baby killer. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take thank you for your service even though it's it's an awkward conversation, I think, but it's better than someone calling me names. I think that's when, when people say it, I think that's all they're trying to say is like, Hey, I support you. I've got your back. I believe in what's going on, what what you're doing. So it's a way to just say that with that one sentence. Which is great. I mean, it comes from a good place, but Mm. you know, I think that we can, we can, it it may take us. I don't think as veterans, we should wait around to tell other people how we want to be addressed. I think we see other populations in our country who are doing that right now and saying, here's historically how we've been treated and here's how we would like to be treated moving forward. And I think at some point we need to say that too and say, we do appreciate the support. Um, And, you know, I, a a couple years ago, I attended a veterans day ceremony here in town at the American Legion. And um, they, they were honoring World War II veterans. And so they were calling up different names, their, their branch, and then, you know, their MOS or kind of what they did. And, um, and they call up this old timer and he was a tanker and, uh, you know, it's kind of a somber ceremony, but I didn't give a damn. I just stood up and like, I mean, I gave this dude the round of applause that, that, that he deserved and, and, you know, kind of whooped and hollered a little bit. And, and, um, so anyway, so then I, afterward, then I went up to him, you know, and, um, and man, I mean, he was at Battle of the Bulge. I mean, he was telling me, he was telling me like the stories, like what, what the stuff that's in the history books, you know, that, that he lived as a tanker, which again was this cool shared, ex- yeah, the tanks were different when I was in versus when he was in, but we had this kind of shared experience and uh, it was great. And he talked for so long. I immediately went home and called my brother, who's a, um, he's a um, army veteran as well. And, uh, and I was telling him about this guy and, and my brother kind of, you know, got quiet, you know, after, after I finished telling my story and he said, that's what happens when you go 40 years without anyone asking you about your service. 
And, and that's what I think is that I'm not saying every veteran is, is just itching to tell their story. But, man, hang around that Millvet Center for a little while, and you can't get them to shut up most of the time. So <laughs> I, I do think that, um, you know, typically at a younger age, they had this very life-changing experience. And to keep that encapsulated is probably not good for their mental health, number one. Um, but number two, I think they, they want to – the everyone's greatest um, – you know, want in life is to be accepted, right? That's all we want. We, we want that over other things, even to our own detriment, right? But so I think that veterans are sometimes hesitant to share their stories because they don't know how it will be perceived, you know, when you're like, yeah, we were launching rounds over that hill or whatever. And, and you, you only say things like that in certain company because you don't know what people might perceive. We're like, well, were there any civilian casualties or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and so, so it's, it's like those can be important questions, but we haven't, as a society, been able to create a safe space to engage in those kinds of conversations. But I, I think at least asking people about their service. Um, I think you make a really good point that it was a very important part of their life, usually at, at a young age. And that's something that can be locked away for a long time. And then, yeah, just to ask the questions about it, share it. It doesn't have to get into the politics of it, but just that experience for that person is important to them and shaped who they are probably today. And yeah, it's a great way to just let that out, share that. Right. I think the acceptance part of it is kind of a big deal too, because I mean, not, like you said, not everyone's out there itching to tell their story, but for me personally, it's because I hadn't accepted my own story. Mm. And then once I got around other veterans, because whenever I got out, I was very cynical, kind of like the whole, I don't really, thank you for your service. service. I don't care. Yeah. And then, I mean, once I started engaging with other veterans, I found I found that acceptance for myself, and I'm a heck of a lot better mentally because of it. So mm-hmm. now I'm more than willing to share my story with anyone else because just your willingness to do that kind of brings that out in others. Right. And it kind of helps you, like, work through your story, you know? Like, you don't just get out and be like, oh, I have this great story that I want to tell people. And uh, for me, I mean, there was a lot. Luckily, I didn't go 40 years without it, you know, but if I hadn't gone to college and, and had a military and veteran center with all these vets hanging around, like, I pro- who would I tell my story to? You know, there's, there's certain things I tell my wife, and then there's certain things I'm like, I don't want to burden her with that. Like, mm-hmm. she's not going to look at me the same. And, but I can come in the, the mill vet center and be like, hey, Andy, you know, I want to talk about this deployment or you know whatever happened on this like mm-hmm. and um so i i can only imagine like holding on to some of that stuff for for 40 years and what that's like because mm-hmm. i mean it i think that's kind of what held me back on my transition was not having that support network to to work through that so. i mean i struggled with it for two years you struggled with it for what, three four almost yeah and I mean, now that we've gotten out there and told our story, we're both a lot more productive members of society because of it. Yeah, yeah. you guys are leaders in the vet center. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it just comes down to like, I understand what that struggle is like. So if I can do anything to help someone else not go three or four years or 10 years or 20 years struggling with that if I can catch them right off the bat you know welcome them in and and make them feel like they have that camaraderie that they had in the military then 
if I would have had that, it would just been a lot easier for me. So I try to give that to other people. Agreed. Agreed. So it's actually pretty interesting to hear about that because whenever I've met a veteran or someone uh, that served our country, I always said, thank you for your service. So it's interesting to hear that that's not always the best thing to say because it's a conversation ender. I probably have a little different reason, and I'm sure we all have different reasons why it kind of maybe pushed a button. For me at the time, it was more political. Um, I'm over that, but... But it, it also, I think Chris has made a good point. It's kind of a conversation. It's like you just say that, like, oh, you were in the military? Well, thank you for your service. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Like, go. It's like one of those things that you're like, I don't know what to say to you. Yeah. So, correct. like, what do you say to someone, especially somebody that has, like, visible injuries? Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking at somebody with their legs blown off. Like, what do you say to them? Yeah, thank you for your service. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. It seems a little trite, maybe. It, it's it's literally the equivalent of we're sorry for your loss. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's I don't want to ask anything because they're going to start breaking down crying or they're, they're going to bring up stuff that I'm uncomfortable with. Right. And I don't want to so, engage. Really. And so, yeah, I, I think I think if we think of it that way as that analogy that it's 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 the same thing that we've all we have all said we're so sorry for your loss and we said that because we. We don't know how they might react to certain things. You know, if mm-hmm. if you say, like, are you doing okay? What if they're not doing okay? Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be a great thing for us to engage with someone who's not doing okay yeah. and be that shoulder for them to cry on or say, we've got resources we can point you to or just tell me, tell me what's going on, but we don't do that. If we think that they might say that they're not doing well, then we just say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I think they're in the same boat that we are. You know, like, we don't know what to say back to it. I don't think they know what to say to us. Like, what questions do you ask? I remember getting home and, and like, my grandma crying because she asked me how it was, and everyone was like, don't talk to him about it, you know, and she started crying. I'm like, no, like, you can ask. I'll tell you what I want to tell you, but, like, don't feel bad for asking me questions. And I just think people are so scared to step on toes and, and ask the wrong question that they just don't ask anything. And that's what I loved about teaching high school because those the, the kids didn't care. You, just, you walk in, and they're like, out of the mouth of babes. Oh right? yeah, yeah, high school babes. Yeah, they're like, uh, you're in the army, Stockdale. Like, did you kill a bunch of people? <laughs> and you're like, you're like, that's a complicated question. So let, let's let's unpack that a little bit. But 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 purposefully, I would engage with with those sorts of questions and and have real discussions. Um, I always taught, you know, because I. I taught poetry in, in my classes, and I would always teach like a war poetry unit um, using um, often poems that I had written myself about some of my experiences, which I did not, um, I didn't lead with saying like I wrote this, you know, I, I'd, we'd read the poem just like we would anything else. And then the students would be like, whoa, and then, and then we'd start to unpack that poem and have this literary discussion. You're like, I think this person may have whatever. We go through this whole thing, and then at the end, I'm like, so I wrote that. And like, I mean, you'd have students like break down in class because it, it brought it home to them. Um, we, I was part of a team because um, I was assigned to our command unit when I was deployed. And, and we actually made sort of a mini documentary um, about our experience, too. And I almost always showed that to um, the students as well so that they could, again, see the, the human element you know, that the news doesn't necessarily report of, of uh, it's like, hey, here's some guys thrown into this 
crazy situation that they really couldn't have planned for themselves. Maybe like me, who didn't really feel they even had a choice to join the military. Um, and you were going to hear firsthand from them about what they're experiencing in, you know, other people who were, who would have been born in my place and my family probably would have ended up in the, in the same place I did, because those were the choices that I was knowledgeable of that I felt that like I had, it wasn't, I, I think that's the other thing too, is that, you know, people are like, why would you want to be in the military? Why did you choose to be in the military? And, and maybe you all did, I don't know, but I've talked to a lot of veterans and when you boil it down because of some economics, um, um, other failed starts or, or whatever else, very few of the veterans that I've talked with were really saying I've, I had a free, free will decision and I, out of every opportunity in life, I chose the military. Some people did, but that's the minority that I've talked to. I think after 9-11, you had a lot more people that joined for the more patriotic reasons. Absolutely. Um, I was also went in at 97, so my reasons for going in were I was a little too friendly with Johnny Law. And Johnny Law said, you might ought to get out of town. So I did. Yeah. But uh, to sum it up, Garrett, I, I would say that that particular phrase strikes a different chord with just about everyone you say it to. So, I mean, it, it might not be the best thing to say, but I don't think it's necessarily something that you should fully avoid saying if that's if that's what you're, if you're trying to portray that you do, in fact, support the military forces that. It's not something you should actively avoid. But you should try to strike up a conversation with yeah. them and take it further and then end on that note. Exactly. Correct. I mean, if you're, if you're truly interested about their military service, not just kind of, hey, I appreciate what you did, which, is never, it, which also isn't a bad thing mm-hmm. uh, as like a passing statement, like if you're not trying to have a conversation with them. But, yeah, if you're interested in, in what they actually did, then ask them about that. I would never lead with thank you for your service. I would I would end with it, which I think is kind of the what we've come to as a conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting to hear about uh, you know your experiences of transitioning, like the uh, kind of lack of structure. You know, where you use transition uh, transitioning back into civilian life, and also you know uh, all of you all talking about you know the. Thank you for this, for your service and just wishing that people would actually expand upon that and actually make it into a conversation. What were some of the other difficulties you all experienced uh, when you all were transitioning from military life to civilian life? For me, I mean, one of the other elements was that, especially as an education major and then as an English education major, I was the only male in almost all of my classes. And I had gone from combat arms, where at the time only males were allowed in combat, and even our medics were male in my unit. Every every person was male. The only females I ever saw were maybe in um, serving food in the chow hall or something like that. You know, civilian contractors or something. But um, so it was very different. You know, I was trained as a leader in the military, and then to transition and to begin to try to be sort of a classroom leader and, and those sorts of things, but working with a population that I had almost not worked with at all for four years. I mean, I had to learn a few things and watch my language and, and, and be more attentive and interact interpersonally in a way that I had not before. I think the, uh, the leadership thing is kind of a, one of the big things that uh, a lot of people struggle with getting out because in almost every single job in the military, you're thrown into a leadership position at some point. 
And that was actually one of the big things for me whenever I got out because I was in charge of people and I ran a course and then I got out and I had none of that. I had no one that I was in charge of. That sounds kind of conceited, but I I didn't have anyone to like look after. So I kind of lost my sense of purpose whenever I got out because I didn't have that, that group of people that I was supposed to lead. So I, with that, I didn't really know where I should go or what I should do. But that kind of like keeps you accountable though. You know, when you have someone looking to you, you can't just be like, oh, fuck it. I don't want to do this. Like you have to show up and you have to do that job. And then when you get out and there's no one looking up to you anymore, you're like, well, if I just want to stay in bed and drink a fifth today, then that's what I'm going to do. Like I don't have anyone to answer to. I don't have anyone looking up to me now. I think that's a, a huge, huge point. That brings up a good point, you know, the difference between uh, an extrinsic source of motivation or uh, mm-hmm. versus your intrinsic, where you're actually self-disciplined and you do things because you're going to do it for yourself versus that structure in the military where it's coming from the outside source. So, But obviously we're all here, so there's some level of self-discipline that you gain somehow, so... Maybe that's something we could expand on. I mean, it it just took me a while, though. Like, I was in a really dark place, um, and it doesn't hit you for, I mean, for me personally. I was out. I'm like, hell yeah, like, this is awesome. I don't have to show up to formation at 6 in the morning. (laughs) Like, I'll be damned if I ever do a 30-mile hike again, which, you know. I, I have <laughs> 100, 150 mile hike. But never say never, right? It's so much better when it's your choice. Yeah. But, you know, so I get out and then I'm like, oh, man, this is great. I got all this freedom. I get to do whatever the hell I want. And uh, then all of a sudden it hits you and you're like, shit, like, I'm not doing anything important. So then you start searching for something that, that has meaning and – I'd say it probably took me a good year and a half to really give a shit about anything. Like I hated everyone around me because I felt like my reason for coming home was because, you know, I, I kind of felt like I owed it to my family, like Chris said, and, uh, and I didn't really have anything better. So I came home, but then I like started hating them because I was unhappy there. So like all of my unhappiness, I kind of wanted to push on everybody else. And, uh, One day I was just, you know, I've had enough of this shit. I'm tired of feeling sorry for myself, and I'm going to do something about it. And so, you know, college is the route I took, and even then it took me a little bit after that to really get through that. But that I, I remember, like, clear as day, just one day waking up and being like, this is not the life I want to live. And for some people, you know, they don't make that adjustment they turn to other they never have that wake up that morning where it comes to them and yeah but i mean like you hit that point where you're like enough is enough like i'm not gonna live my life this way and i think that's kind of that crossroads where a veteran's gonna either take their life or they're gonna do something to make their life better and depending on how rough that journey has been and the resources they have around them maybe dictate which road they're going to take there. I would think, uh, I would say that the overwhelming amount of extrinsic motivation in the military and just military life in general, 
the where to go, when to go, how to go type deal is is so overwhelming for for most of the people in that they kind of lose that intrinsic motivation. And Mm -hmm. like like Kenny did, he had to he kind of had to work through it and find that intrinsic motivation again because he lived four years with an overwhelming amount of extrinsic motivation that he didn't know how to be motivated to help himself. Yeah, you don't have to be motivated to get out of bed in the morning in the military. Yeah. They will get you out, yeah. and you'll only make that mistake once. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like you don't worry about yourself when you're in the military because you don't matter. Yeah. You know, like you you do, but as far as the big picture of the military, like you're just a number, and you realize that pretty soon, and you're like, I'm just a piece of this puzzle. Like well, if I die or whatever – like they can fill my spot just like that. I would say you matter in a different way. It's not your individual like what your you as a individual person matters, but what you do matters to the guy next to you. If you're doing your job correctly, yeah. Yeah. then you're making sure that he's able to do his job. So that matters in a different way. Like your analogy with the the chain, you're a link in that chain, but if that link's not there, so well, and that's it comes back to that having those people that are depending on you. So then when you get out and you don't have that anymore, like either sort of motivation is not there. You're like, you know, I'm doing this because it matters. And if I'm not there, you know, they're going to suffer because they have to pick up my slack or whatever, which is the same in a civilian job, but it's not as as much. Yeah. It's not as pertinent. It's not life and death. Well, I, I think in the military for the most part too, there's, you know, you live with the expectation that everyone will do their job and they will do it to a certain standard. And I think that's a shocking thing when people get out of the military and even for college students. And they're like, all right, um, you got to read the next chapter and turn in the homework. And then that veteran goes to class the next time and then sits up front, got the homework out and then is shocked to find that <laughs> two thirds of the people didn't do anything. Yeah. And then they like push the deadline back a week. Yeah. For everyone that didn't do it. Everybody couldn't do it. You're like, I stayed up all night doing that shit. And, or the, or and the, will, that will drive a veteran crazy. Yeah. The first time you were assigned to group work and oh, you got God. stuck in a group with a couple of people that are like, yeah, yeah. You're like, what in the world is going on? Yeah. So just get like, out of the group. I'll then. just, I'll just do it myself. Yes. And I'll put your guys' name on it. Yep. Is everybody cool with that? And I mean, they are. So <laughs> of course they <laughs> when are. When I hear group project, it just means a little bit more work for me to do the whole thing, but I don't have to communicate with them and life is life of all on. my undergrad experiences that was by far the worst was when we got put into groups to do group work i hated it i still hate it in yeah. graduate school i think a lot of people a lot of college students even people that weren't in the military <laughs> yeah it. it's still yeah <laughs> you always get those people don't you Garrett? Yeah. it's it's because yeah. you have to communicate and nobody likes to do that yeah, yeah or sometimes it's a it, you the the opposite can be the jockeying for the leadership position there's yeah. that one person that wants to be the leader but they're not quite capable or or they come off as overbearing and you know it just turns everybody off and they don't want to do anything so there's that that situation too or you have the opposite where they're just no they don't want to do anything so it's complicated for sure always i mean going back to um the whole uh standard of work thing um you uh, you were saying like you had people that depended on you right and i mean that's that's kind of what it really turns into for a lot of military folks is like you don't really care about the mission you're you're worried about the person to the left yeah. and the right of you 
And that just being in that environment for so long creates a strong sense of camaraderie that you lose as soon as you leave that duty station, as soon as you get out. And you 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 go from having your friends around you basically 24-7 to being by yourself or with just your wife. And it's it's probably one of the harder things about the transition, I would think. Mm-hmm. I would because say. it's like when, when we say friend, you know, that's <laughs> such a subjective term. And, and like I talked about in my my introduction, my idea of family and friends is, has changed dramatically because of my military experience. But my whole thing is, like, you're losing a brother that you might not see again for another, like, 40 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe you guys decide to meet up when you're old and crusty, or maybe you never see him again. Mm-hmm. But I look to them as my brothers the same way as I look at my blood brother. They mean that much to me. And so then, like, one day you're like, all right, I'm going to say goodbye to these people, and I'm never going to see them again. And uh, and that's it's a really tough, tough mm-hmm. thing to wrap your mm-hmm. mind around. And, you know, I think Andy touched on something that, that's also backed by research. Part of it's just the time that you spend with those folks. I, I think there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal this week that talked about, like, how long it takes to make a friend, you know, and it's like, you know, t- 25, 30 hours, like, wh- that you, which is a lot of contact for just civilians who are interacting in a one-hour class or, you know, who maybe work together but not super closely, but, you know, interpersonal interactions for 20 or 30 hours, and you'd have what you consider a friend, right? All right, now stretch it to 200 hours, which is when they say you can make, like, a best friend, right? Add up basic training. You hit 200 hours by the end of the first week, mm-hmm. right? And that's just basic. We're not counting deployments and and whatever else. And so I think that very few adults of that age, college is the only thing that's close, and it's just not anywhere near the contact hours. You know, I mean, I, I was on a tank for four years, and you have a tank crew of four individuals, and we would go days without seeing anyone besides our wingman's tank, and we wouldn't Besides over the radio, we wouldn't even interact with them. So I actually had less of a difficult time with group work because if you can't work with four people, <laughs> then your life will not go well. And those people, you're literally, you know, when I was a gunner on the tank, I mean, your headrest is your tank commander's knees. So you have to be in a very close personal relationship with those folks. And you're not going to find four people that you agree on everything with and, and all of that. But you also don't have that... You know, if you're in an infantry platoon or something, you're like, all right, screw these guys. I'm going to walk over here for a while and, mm-hmm. and hang out with hang out with them. But um, you don't have that. That's all you have. And so um, to go from that to, like Andy said, the civilian interactions, which aren't um, – they just – you don't have that same contact time. Better yet, the other things that drive people together, like, um, you know, really challenging circumstances or yeah, staying the, I around the Yeah, I was going to point on the uh, shared traumatic experiences, yeah. Yeah. which you get in the military. Even basic training is a traumatic experience. Absolutely. And so those people you go through with, that's a shared experience that you're going to take with you for the rest of your life, and it builds a bond that you don't get elsewhere. Well, so. I mean, the whole, like, misery breeds company, you know, it's, it's a term thrown around a lot when you're in the field. But man, it it couldn't be any closer to the truth. Yeah, to go through the hardships together <laughs> yeah. and see how you get through it together. Because there's times when I would be down and my buddy would pick me up, and there'd oh, be yeah. times when he was down, I'd pick him up. You know, and, and going through that over, you kind of see the cycles. And there's days you're going in like, man, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to be strong for my for my group for yeah. my. So, and I mean, we 
we all have those friends that you might not have talked to in a year, but if you show up on their doorstep, they're going to be like, hey, what's up? Get in here, get some food. You know, the yeah. whole, like, it, you're not going to be an intrusion. They're going to be happy to see you because they've gained that brother back. Going from the transition, it's time to transition into some myth busting. Hey. Um, there are a lot of military myths, some true and some that are completely false regarding the uh, military and life in the military. Recently, uh, we asked some people what myths they have heard and would like to see confirmed or busted. So, the first myth on the chopping block is military training can't be applied to civilian jobs. Who's got this one? I'll I'll start it if you guys don't mind. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. I say bullshit. Which, by the way, I'm like the only one cussing, and we worked hard to get that approved, so <laughs> if you guys could help me out a little bit. Um, I think it's not so much the military training that applies, it's how you word that training. You have to be able to sell it in a different environment. So there's a lot of things that I got from the infantry, you know, like, and I'll joke and be like, well, you know, I was a trigger puller and that applies to nothing in the civilian world whatsoever. So I'm basically starting over, but it gives you so many valuable life skills that really set you apart from, you know, your, your new peers in the civilian world. Uh, I know we touched on leadership being one of them, uh, communication, that communication style has got to be tweaked a little bit. Um, but you know how to communicate with people in the most stressful environment possible. Like if I can have a conversation without moving my mouth in a firefight, like, you know, I can have a conversation with somebody in a factory when it's loud and it's hard to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's just a lot of valuable skills that you get and you may not realize it until you're put into a situation where you have to kind of call back on that. Like, I, I don't stack bodies anymore, but I still use a lot of those skills, you know, so. I think for me, um, it's the ability to, to adapt and think on your feet. And that's, that's what I often see, espe- especially when, um, when shit hits the fan. So I'm trying to help Kenny out here. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, and this, this happens to me even here on this campus in my daily life, you know, um, about a month ago, faculty member runs into my office and, you know, I just saw a student go into the bathroom and entire face was covered in blood and, and whatever else, right? And I've just been, since I've worked here, I've been this magnet for folks running in and saying, like, we have a, not an academic emergency, we have a real life emergency. And there's just something about military training that not only you're able to act in those situations, but I feel like people are able to sense Crisis management. Crisis mm-hmm. management. They're able to sense that. And so immediately I'm like, let's call public safety. And I'm going to go in and check on the kid. And then I need some paper towels. We got a nosebleed, you know, whatever it is. And it, you, you don't, be, because you've been in circumstances where if you hesitate even for a second, people die. Um, and so you even train that way. You know, when, when we train with blanks, we're not, you know, shooting them up in the air and, and, and making jokes. And, well. and All right, Andy. <laughs> Uh, in the army, in the army. <laughs> you guys um, don't eat crowns. So. That's right. And so I, I think there's a very serious nature. You know, we always said train like you fight. Right. Yeah. And I've applied that to civilian jobs where, 
you know, if we're going to do something, let's try to do it the right way from the beginning and, and then having great systems in place and then being able to think very quickly on your feet when, again, when real life emergencies occur. And I just don't always see that from, from other people without that training. So I, I would think that in this room, I I'd, I'd probably was the only one that gained any type of skill that would be marketable in the civilian world because uh, ordnance loader, weapons loader, yeah, weapons loader, infantry, tanker. Not a whole lot can apply to the civilian world with any of those jobs, but like, there are jobs in the military that will teach you skills that you can use in the out in, in the civilian world. Like, we have people that are purely dedicated to administration stuff. And then I was a linguist, so I got to learn a language. It was a useless language, but I could probably find a way to market that skill in the civilian world. So when you when you look at those skills, you know, if if you get a job that directly relates to a civilian career, do you think it's harder for them to transition into that career? Because it's not they're gonna face all the same things that we are, you know, like this is how your life has been structured for four years or 20 years. And then you're going into a career where you're expected to have that knowledge base, but things do not run the same way. Regardless, it may be the same job, but it ain't run the same way that it was run in the military. So do you think it's harder for them to adjust or for somebody to just wipe the slate clean and go into something that they have no knowledge on? So I think that they should... I would say probably like partially wiping it. So, I mean, there's a lot of skills that you would learn that could translate. Um, so say admin, you know how systems run, you know, specific systems in the military, and then you get out and they're like, okay, we're running this system now. Well, you already have kind of a base knowledge of how certain things are run. So you can kind of use that and translate it over to the civilian world. And I think there's a quite a few different jobs that, that kind of have that potential. I, I think it also presupposes that that person wants to continue in that profession. And mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think there are a lot of uh, entities, state and federal right now, that are looking at, like, how can we create these smoother pipelines between military occupation specialties and, and civilian employment? And we're just assuming that they all want to continue in that same job. So you were an accountant in the Air Force for 14 years, so you should want to be an accountant in the civilian world. They're like, no, I want to be an art teacher. Yeah. There's right? a reason why they got out. Yeah. Like, it, it might look a little <laughs> different if they retired, but you're like, man, I did, like, four years or ten years or whatever doing that. I'm never going to do that again. So for me, I think there's two ways to answer this, and I, I think maybe this is what the myth was trying to get at. Um, so Andy hit on it earlier, so... Uh, Chris, Kenny, and I have skills that don't translate into the real world that we got in the military, but we also have soft skills that do translate. So mm-hmm. communication, organization, self-discipline, time management, that's all in the military base, regardless of what you did. But then, yeah, our jobs maybe don't translate. So I guess, I guess that myth is kind of a it's how you want to look at it. It just mm-hmm. depends yeah. on how specific you want to be right. with those yes. job skills. Mm-hmm. You never yeah. know. You know, United might start loading chaff and flare on their, <laughs> their aircraft, and I can pick it right back up. There you go. <laughs> so it's plausible. It depends on what you – How you want to look yeah. at it, yeah, yeah. because I think every – we we touched on this earlier. Everyone that goes to the military is going to have to, at one time or another, have leadership that's yeah. kind of – so 
that translates into any job or whatever you do outside. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, the actual skills that you, the MOS or the job that you learn, maybe you could make an argument for both sides. And a lot of those leadership skills and a lot of those soft skills that you uh, learn in the military, those are in high demand out in the workforce. So. Exactly. Yeah. So our second myth that I chose is since we have an ex-army guy here, uh, Dr. Stockdale. Um, <laughs> Maybe this is a great question. Someone said the Army is the best branch. Would you agree with that and why? You uh, submitted that question, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> of course he agrees with it. I'm wearing a T-shirt right now that says the Army is the best branch. No. Um, be all you can be. <clears throat> yeah, I think every branch has its function. You know, when, when I grew up, I mean, you know, we all played in the woods playing Army. We didn't play Coast Guard, you know. Um but I think as you um, actually get into the service, you see um, some differences between that. We, you know, Marines notoriously have very rigorous training, um, both in basic training and um, even in garrison, you know, when, when they go out into the field. Um, we know that they're often going to be the first folks in. So I don't think you'll find a whole lot of Army people who are like, yeah, we better, our basic training's tougher, and mm. like, we could be the first in, but, you know, we'll let them go. <laughs> I, I think everyone knows, like, nah, w that's what the Marines do. And, and uh, you know, for being a tanker, you know, we do not enter the arena without air superiority. So, um, yeah, and we've got some A-10s, and I've worked with some A-10s who, who've saved our asses on, on many occasions, but... Um, but we know the Air Force is going to establish that. You know, I when I um, deployed to Kosovo, I mean, it was fought, it was preceded by sixty days of of Air Force activities primarily, and so um, so for me, I, I think that um, even most people in the Army um, wouldn't say it's the best branch. I think they they would say you know it, it's kind of the the go to general that most people think of, and then I think they see a lot of the other branches as having a specialty that maybe selfishly they may say complements the things that the Army does. I've heard the argument, too, at the Army that they were the first. So the Air Force is, a you know, spawned from, from the, the Army. Uh, right. So, yeah. And also best is a, a vague word. What do you mean by best? You know, strategically or the mission is all going to matter. So if so. we're talking about uniforms, <laughs> Marine Corps got it hands down. <laughs> I, I've I've personally never been a huge fan of the 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 inner branch fighting. Um, I mean, I, I obviously was a part of it whenever I was a younger Marine, but I mean, I I deployed uh, basically out of an army uh, base in support of Air Force. So I mean, I I think the whole oh we're better than you, we're better than you is, is all kind of bullshit because at the end of the day, it's all one team, one fight, and no one branch could win a war by themselves. It's, it's one of those situations where it's like, you know, they're my brother and I get a pick on them, mm -hmm. but nobody else does. Exactly. So it's, I mean, you have pride in, in the branch that you served in. Like, I didn't choose to join the Marine Corps because I heard it was the easiest branch or, you know, like, yeah, the Marine Corps is cool, but the Army is so much better than why did you join the Marine Corps? So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. just, you got to make yourself look good, you know? I always kind of took it as friendly banter between yeah. the branches, but some people take it seriously, and I think that's kind of kind of detrimental to the the whole like camaraderie of, between the branches. Yeah, so well, when the Marines would come to our Air Force bases, it was typically they were 
Okay, oh. who's who wants to fight? Yeah, they, well, <laughs> that's, that's we I would, each I would other, just so. yeah, I would just get them drunk and then it would all be good. They'd yeah. end up fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fetus, booze, and crowns will be nice to you. But I mean, I, it's no different than like sports teams. Yeah, you know, my team is better than your team. It's, it and again, the word that. "best" is like, what do you mean by that? So. It's subjective. It yeah, is. Subjective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to answer your question, the Marine Corps. <laughs> so basically that one, I guess we can all agree that's kind of busted. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so. it, I think it's friendly. There's actually a great meme, Garrett, that I don't know if we pointed out to you over in the, the vet center. It's a uh, picture of the four branches. So on the first one, they're doing pull-ups. The Marine, he's buff. He's ripped up there. He's got that pull-up down. The Navy guy, he's doing it pretty good. Army guys struggling a little bit, and then the last one's the Air Force, and it's actually the, a box of pull-ups, the diapers. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that one. That's funny. And I just want to say that I don't understand why the Marine Corps has to do 20 pull-ups. Like, you're only going to pull up one time to get yourself over a wall or something. So, Because you guys are the best. That you is said it. the dumbest standard ever. What if, what if you got 20 walls in front of you, Kenny? Huh? What are you going to do then? Like, me, so, you know, since my last name is Wall, and uh, the Marine Corps doesn't go around, they go through. So if I'm pulling up over one wall, like I've had enough, and we're going to blow it with some C4 and be done with that nonsense. We get, we got any other myths? These are fun. Uh, we do, actually. You can, you can always, like, cut this and add it in. You got to uh, give me the juiciest one on there. I want to. I want to yeah. start some fights. Well, let me see. <laughs> we when we submitted the or sent this out, we got like a response within the first two hours. I had like six or seven responses, and I thought, man, we're going to get flooded with these. Yeah. And the next day, we had got to ten, and then it just stopped. <laughs> That's it. That was it. It's like AT applications. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All those motivators. We have oh, like yeah. seven, and now now we have ten, and then yeah, like. Mm -hmm. Within the first day of seven, and now it's like three more in yeah. the last like five days. We'll put up the posters, and then that'll drive yeah. some more. And then Maybe I'm just gonna pester the shit out of people until they. We can <laughs> hand out boxes of crowns. <laughs> so here's one for Dewey. Darian said the Air Force is the easiest branch of the military. So kind of going with the last one, it, would you say that one's busted as well? Again, that's, uh, you know, what do you mean by easiest? And the, the argument I always heard was that our boot camp was because we did have the, the shorter boot camp. Um, and I had a female TI, but I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mess with her in, ever. So easiest, I, it goes back to the camaraderie too. Like we're all in it, you know, everybody's in the same fight. So, but if I had to do all over again, I would probably choose the Air Force because it was pretty convenient, pretty easy. <laughs> convenient. <laughs> you you actually got to go to school while you were in. Yeah. And uh, we don't we don't do that. Yeah, the Marine Corps is like, what what is this request to go to school? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> like you're. I you know to qualify that though I was by the time I started um, taking classes I had been in about six years, so. Mm -hmm. And I was deployed to Korea, and there wasn't anything else to do over there <laughs> except for get in trouble. Yeah. And I was past that phase, so. <laughs> I mean, I like I said, I had uh, all Air Force leadership on my deployment, and, I mean, they were awesome. I loved them. Like, they, 
weren't as strict as as the Marine Corps leadership was, but they they were still very much mission oriented and like they didn't care about the particulars. They just cared that the that the job was done well and done right. Yeah, I always heard a term we were outcome oriented, meaning that we didn't need the pretense of sometimes the military machismo where we just wanted to get the job done and whatever that took to get it done, we did it. So and I, I really came I came back from the deployment with that mentality. So the whole like rigmarole of the Marine Corps was just retarded to me. And I just <laughs> couldn't get back into the Marine Corps mindset because I mean if we're not doing anything at ten o'clock, I'm gonna leave. Yeah. So we yeah, yeah. I still carry that with me to this day. And the Air Force was like that. Like if you got what you need to get done today, see ya. Be on the golf course later. We yeah. had golf courses on our bases too. Yeah. <laughs> see, we we'd be done by like noon and not get off work till five. Yep. Yeah. Because it was like the nah. military is there to punish you. Yeah. 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 But we, see, I, I think there's something to that. You know, with with the Marine Corps and the Army being combat oriented, keeping us pissed off makes us more effective <laughs> fighters. They're like, all right, we're going to war tomorrow. Like. Cool. Finally. I'm just, just going to recall you keeping me at work for six hours unnecessarily mm-hmm. yesterday, and I'm going to stick it to the enemy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a good, good hypothesis. I like that. Sky said that the military gets really good free health care. Is that true, or is that not true? Uh, Silence. Want, yeah. <laughs> we get free again. Again, these words, yeah, really good is a uh, that's a key key phrase there. So it, we, I'll, I'll I'll jump in here. You know, so the um, Department of Veterans Affairs does have a you know what would be called a fairly robust uh, healthcare system. A lot of uh, veterans who get out don't think that they qualify. Um, they think that oh, I'm not dis- I'm not disabled, so I don't qualify. Or I'm not a combat veteran, so I don't qualify. Um, none of which is true, um, and and so um, sure, there's just like any healthcare system. There's a lot of variety of where you go and who you see, and individual doctors and and treatment methods. And there are some federal regulations that maybe private hospitals don't have to follow, and and so you might be subject to some of those things, but. I can't tell you how many colleagues I work with that the only reason they still work is because of healthcare, and so um, so as much as veterans might we I do too we all you know poke fun at the VA and and complain about you know how long it took them to see or those sorts of things but um, assuming that there aren't, there aren't major changes and there could be right but assuming that there aren't major changes to the system as it exists now it, it's a really comfortable feeling to know that I won't have to. Um, work, you know, until I'm whatever age, if if it's only for the purpose of healthcare when I am in that system. Agree to that, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, are we talking about veteran healthcare? Or are we talking about military healthcare? Let's combine them and let's remove I mean, the let's remove the word "really good," and then I think we would probably say yes, we do receive healthcare. Yeah, because <laughs> that that was the approach I was taking as like actually being in the military. You know, change your socks. Here's some Motrin. That was the answer <laughs> Motrin, for everything. Motrin, yes, everything. Like, I have to give it to the VA. They they care a little bit more than Corman did. We, uh, we get uh, we get military-grade health care is, is what we get, which is to us. mil-spec health care? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which to us means something completely different than it would to a civilian. 
you, you guys have seen that meme, like, oh, this is military grade. And the veteran is like, oh, wow. And then the vet's like, oh, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess I'll give a quick story, like one of my stories with healthcare. So um, in Korea, I hurt my back pretty good. It was weird. I knew something was wrong because I'd never experienced anything like this. I was getting numbness in my feet, my legs, my groin area. I kept going back, kept getting Motrin. said, sleep it off. You'll be all right. After about three weeks, what I realized was that each time I had went before, I was getting a nurse practitioner, and all they could do was give me Motrin. So that's what they did. Finally, after my fourth or fifth visit and saying, hey, this is, this is not right. I'm not, you know, this is not me. I'm not malingering. There was something going on. It was a real doctor. He checked me out. I was like, yeah, I see the spaz going on. So like muscle spasms and nerve issues. And, but that lead up to it was kind of had me, had me very frustrated. Let's put it that way. You know, so my final visit with Dr. Hanley, I remember him to this day. Good guy, major. He took care of me. He's like, yeah, this is a real deal. We need to get you taken care of. But it took some time. So mm-hmm. I think I try to remind uh, military people, too, that it's socialized medicine in the military is what you're dealing with. So you're going to get good and bad. But you always got it. It's always there. But you may not get what you always want. You know, so. the, the same thing happens in the civilian world, too. But the plus side is you're not footing the bill. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't worry about that. I just was going back trying to get the issue solved for me at this time. Uh, I mean, as far as free health care goes, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty solid. You get what you pay for. <laughs> I mean, how, it's free. Like, you hear the phrase, nothing is free. It's free. And the other thing to think of, too, if the, you know, the guy is a doctor and, you know, could get out, he's going to make three, four, five, ten times as much what he's going to make in while he's in. So that's something to think of, too. How, how, how can they retain people in, in the military to do those professions that are so – lucrative outside of the military so that was a big problem in my field not mine mine either <laughs> mine either <laughs> they gave us bonuses to stay in <laughs> they tried that but i mean if you could go out and contract make six figures yeah. first year so what are you gonna do that's that's any contracting job mm-hmm. though Go drive a truck and do that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll never forget, like, my entire peer group. There's, like, 150 of us from the battalion in there, and they're like, all right, we're offering you guys a $1,000 signing bonus. Like, <laughs> nope, four years was enough, thanks. <laughs> well, why isn't anybody re-enlisting? Because <laughs> $1,000 isn't worth it. Sideshow Bob said military dependents are brats. Oh, so I'm assuming we're talking about children here. The dependents, yes. What? Because the military spouses have a whole nother nickname assigned yeah. to them. <laughs> I think we should really call into question the legitimacy of Sideshow Bob. <laughs> he and sounds like an upstanding fellow to me. <laughs> but, I mean, we deal with a lot of dependents in the center, and I don't think any of them are brats or entitled by any means and i know that nickname is like a sign to them yeah so it's kind of a term not, of endearment it's yeah. not met in a bad way i, I never intended it in a bad like, way i but call I, my wife a depend all the time she loves it <laughs> but I, I do think there are um when you look at 
K-12 systems and, and um, military assignments, I mean, there are challenges, you know, when you have one or both parents who are gone for large portions of the year on deployment. I mean, if they were long haul truckers and, and gone for that amount of time, there might be, you know, behaviors that sort of escalate in the home environment that, that work their way into the school environment too. And so, so I do think there are some unique challenges, not to mention, you know, we probably all knew a, a kid in school when we went to school that had moved around a bunch, right? Yeah, I was going to say So that. every military kid has moved around a bunch and mom or dad has gone all the time and financial stuff may have been up and down. And, you know, when, when you're moving and the spouse loses employment when you move from one place to another. So, so I, I, I can see, I, I agree with Dewey that it can be a term of endearment, but I, I also do think that historically, um, you know, dependent children of, of military families have been known to have some, you know, issues when, when they're going through the school system. Well, another thing that I wanted to point out is, especially if it's like a time of war or and your parent is serving on the front line, there yeah. is always that worry of will they come home? A lot of stress on that that yeah. kid or kids, and that can do a lot of spouse, men, and that can do a lot of uh, mental, absolutely damage. I yeah. mean, anxiety and stuff. Yeah, that's know? a good point. That we're, we've talked about our experiences, but the the dependents are going through a lot of these similar things too, in a, in a different way because. Mm-hmm. Either they're they're a part of the move and they're constantly packing up and going somewhere new, having to make all these you know new relationships, meet friends, and then could be pulled right up the next year and gone. But I don't think it's 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 just a time time of war thing either. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of deployments that are out there that are dangerous. Just just the nature of what we do can kind of result in death at almost any any point in time, especially in certain MOSs. And and when point. you're when you're a child, you know you don't necessarily understand. Yeah, you can't differentiate. You know, and and I think constantly wondering like, is this going to be my last year mm-hmm. at this school? Like, there's never any certainty in the right. military. That goes for the service member and the dependents. Yeah, we should have found a, a military dependent to kind of talk to them because it's James. Hey, yeah, there's James. What, what's your take on this, James? Um, I mean, in my experience as a dependent. Um, I did move around a little bit. Luckily, I was uh, kind of on the tail end of my dad's career. Um, we did. He was stationed in California for nine years, so basically most of my life up until he retired, we were in the same place. So luckily, I didn't move around too much. But um, I think it is a different experience being a dependent of someone that's in the military because um, you see kind of all the myths that are talked about, you kind of hear and see a little bit of it that uh, your peers in school, like uh, you guys were talking about, you kind of see some of it. So you get, you know, kind of teased or asked about it, but you don't really know the answers, especially when you are just in like grade school and stuff. So that was kind of my experience with it, but not too much crazy from my side. Did you ever like feel like you were kind of on the outside of those groups like you didn't really belong with them um in a way I would say so I wouldn't say it was too much of an outsider experience but you do kind of stand out to your peer or from your peers because like I was saying they don't really get to experience the things that you experience um a lot of people I know like in high school all of my friends and stuff had been together the entire 13 years from kindergarten up and I had moved around a couple times before that, so I had to make new friends, and it was a way to kind of stand out 
even though it wasn't something you really wanted to do. So yeah, you could be an outsider a lot of the time. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. So my experience, I w- went to the same grade school until sixth grade, and then we moved. But you know, I had that whole peer group, whereas a lot of dependents are going to move two or three times maybe, mm-hmm. and that has an effect and changes your outlook. And well, when when you're with a group of of kids, you know that age and their biggest worry is what movie they're going to go see Friday night. Yeah. And you've experienced, you know, it's the same as a veteran. Like the the stressors that we've gone through are way different than some that like our, our 18, 19-year-old college peers have gone through. So it's kind of the same for the dependents. Yeah. That's a good question, Sideshow Bob. Okay. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, Thanks for listening to the UCM Veterans Voice podcast. I would like to give a really special thanks to Dr. Stockdale for taking time out of his busy schedule to visit with us. And tune back in next time for some more exciting discussion on whatever topic we choose for next time. Hell yeah. yeah. Did you know the UCM Veterans Voice is online? Like us at UCM Veterans Voice on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at CM Veterans Voice. Know you at the beginning on Twitter. Also, don't forget to tune back in for our next episode on Wednesday, March 25th. And as always, thanks for listening.